So it's all here. The story of our time with the barcode. That was President Lyndon Baines Johnson upon the dedication of his presidential library in 1971. Since then, the library has played host to the biggest names and best minds of our day who have helped to tell the story of our times through candid, revealing conversations with the Barkoff. This podcast delivers them straight to you. Welcome to With the Barkoff. I'm Mark Updegrove. In this episode, we hear from Nona Jones, author, speaker, and head of global faith-based partnerships at Facebook. Her recent virtual initiative, Faith and Prejudice, is a church-based effort to help white parishioners confront and dismantle racism in themselves, their churches, and their communities. And it has taken off. Since its launch after the murder of George Floyd, the program has reached over 5 million viewers. Nona talks about her own fascinating story, what drew her to Facebook, and how Faith and Prejudice is working to heal the racial divide. Nona Jones, welcome to With the Bark Off. We're delighted to have you here today. Oh, this is my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to borrow from you and a practice you have for the interviews you do for Faith and Prejudice, which we'll talk about today. But I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself beyond the remarkable work we're going to talk about and that's on your resume. Uh, tell us about your background and how it led to where you are in your life now. Wow. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. And thanks for that question. Um, so I, I often describe myself as a statistically improbable product of grace. And what I mean by that is I'm, I'm very, very fortunate. Um, the work that I get to do now, both in the technology sector, as well as uh, my husband and I pastor a church in Florida, um, but I was actually born um, uh, from a mother who didn't want to have children. Um, she and my father had been married for about 13 years, and um, she didn't want to have kids because I think she grew up in poverty. She grew up in a home where there was a lot of violence. And so she decided at an early age that she wanted to just live her life. Um, but, you know, after 13 years of marriage, she found out she was pregnant and um, she was really uh, upset. And she told my father uh, but my father was so excited because he always wanted to be a dad. But midway through her pregnancy, uh, he started to have stomach pain and uh, he went to get some tests run. And when they came back, he was diagnosed with terminal stomach cancer and he was given six months to live. And I can't even imagine. I have two little boys now. They're seven and ten. I can't imagine um, being told that I was going to miss out on my child's life um, after waiting 13 years to be, be a dad. Um, so he fought really hard. He actually lived until two months shy of my second birthday when he passed away. And shortly after that, my mom, uh, she met a guy and ended up moving us uh, on the other side of the country to Florida. Um, and I was about maybe about four, uh, four or five when that relationship kind of disintegrated. Um, and another guy came into her life. And it was shortly after he moved in that things really took a turn for the worse. Um, they started to argue and fight. And he became abusive to me, um, physically and sexually abusive to me at, at a young age. And um, my mother, because I think she didn't want to have children, she would often remind me that uh, I was a burden, that she never wanted me. And, and kind of hearing those things really shaped my, my early childhood to the point where I didn't feel like I had any um, worth, any value. And um, at the ages of nine and 11, I tried to take my life. 
Um, I, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. There was no sense of faith or hope or any of that. Um, and so I thought that ending my life would just end the pain that I was experiencing. But it was shortly after that second suicide attempt that my classmate in the sixth grade, uh, she invited me to go to this thing called church. I had never heard of church before. Um, I thought we were going to go to her house and play. <laughs> um, but we, we went to this, this church thing. And I remember when I walked in the doors, the people were just so kind and uh, welcoming and loving. It was the first time I really felt wanted uh, in my life. And uh, I, I share this because that really became my turning point. Um, it, was, it was that experience of being welcomed by, by strangers, essentially, that gave me a sense of, of worth and value. And it was after that, that I began to focus on uh, what could I do with my life? What could I be? Um, I, I began to study the Bible at that early age. I was about 11 and a half, almost 12. And there were things that were said in it, such as, you know, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. And, um, you know, before you were formed in your mother's womb, you know, I, I called you. Uh, and so it, it, there were things that told me I had, I had meaning and purpose. It changed my life. Um, and that's part of the reason why even today, uh, I'm in ministry in addition to the work that I do in technology, because I know um, the power of faith to really redirect uh, a person's life. Did you get to a point where you were able to forgive your, your mother and, and your stepfather? Oh, man, such a great question. So interestingly enough, um, they never married. So he, he stayed her boyfriend. Mm. But um, so, you know, even after coming into faith um, at, at that young age, what I realized is I got into high school. I was doing really well, graduated, got a scholarship to college. All these things were going well, got into my career going well, but I couldn't enjoy um, the, the fruits of my labor because there was a bitterness within me uh, where I really felt like what happened should not have happened. And um, it was really through studying um, the, the Bible and praying and, and really uh, digging into my faith more that I discovered the power of forgiveness. And, and that's, I think that's honestly what freed me uh, from those feelings that, you know, gosh, I wish this didn't happen. Now I have a ministry uh, working with young women and girls who have been traumatized, trying to give them also hope and help them heal. So I see now how that situation actually created a platform for the work that I'm doing today. And I did have to, had to learn to forgive her and him uh, in order to really experience peace. It's an incredibly inspiring story. How did how did you come to lead faith based partnerships at Facebook? How did that <laughs> opportunity arise? Well, the the simple answer to that question is God, and I'll tell you how because there's no other explanation that makes sense. Um, <laughs> I was in a job that I loved, thought I would be doing this for the rest of my life. I was helping lead a statewide network of alternative schools for girls. Um, it's actually the role I was in when I was in the Presidential Leadership Scholars Program, which is where we met. Um, loved what I was doing, thought I would do it for the rest of my life. And it was in August of 2017 uh, when I was actually in prayer and I was thinking about what I wanted to do next uh, in that role. And uh, I felt that uh, the Lord said, this assignment is over. And I was like, what? You know, I mean, I... <laughs> I had planned to do this for another 20 years. And I just, I felt that so strongly. And uh, when I prayed again, what I sensed was that I needed to resign at the end of that fiscal year, which was June 30th of 2017. So fast forward to that day, right? That's like two and a half months later, 
I give my boss my letter of resignation. Of course, she's like, uh, what do you mean you're leaving? Like, where are you going? What are you doing? What can I do to convince you to stay? And all I could do is tell her, I'll tell you soon. Like, I, I don't know. Um, but then I got in my car, we finished talking at like one forty, heading home two Oh five, my cell phone rang six five Oh area code. And, and I, I, I wasn't going to answer it. It said San Francisco, California. I thought it was a telemarketer. And, uh, I felt in my spirit, I needed to take that call. And I answered the phone and this woman said, hi, is this Nona Jones? I said, yes. She said, I'm calling from Facebook. And of course I was like, well, Facebook doesn't call people. So who is this really? <laughs> And uh, she confirmed that she was calling from Facebook and she began to tell me about how Mark had changed the mission of the company to focus on community building and uh, the largest community that was the most meaningful to people in the world were communities of faith. And she said, my name was given uh, as someone to talk to about it. And uh, I thought they were putting together an advisory board or a committee. <laughs> uh, but uh, two weeks later, I had an offer letter and um, I went ahead and accepted the job. So literally on the day that I resigned uh, from my job after praying and asking God for direction, uh, 25 minutes later, I got a call from Facebook out of the blue. So that's how that happened. That Mark you referred to is, of course, Mark Zuckerberg. Yes. Uh, what led to his realigning the, the company? You know, I think there was a realization in about February of 2017, Facebook crossed the 2 billion user threshold. And, you know, he started this company like in his dorm room. So in his mind, he never imagined that a quarter of the Earth's population would be on Facebook. And so I think he just had a moment of inflection where he was like, all right, we've got a quarter of the world on this platform. What can we do that's really meaningful beyond connecting people to friends and family and, and businesses? And so he began to uh, research the, the idea of community and try to understand uh, what what are the pillars of community and how can social technology um, advance the idea of community? And so that's how the, the mission of the company got changed to focusing mm -hmm. on community. And um, yeah, when the research came back and they saw that faith was the largest, most meaningful community to the people who were in them, um, I think there was a lot of shock and awe because as you can imagine, you know, Silicon Valley is not, you know, a bastion of faith. <laughs> <laughs> There's not a lot of people of faith there. And so it was kind of like, wait, what is this? Um, so that's how it all came about. So you've coined the term social ministry. W what do you mean by that? Yeah. So, you know, when people think of social media, a lot of times they think of it as marketing. They think of it as raising awareness. How do I get more likes, more follows, more comments? When I started in this work, because I've personally been in ministry since I was 17 years old, when I started in this work, the very first question I asked myself was, how can I help houses of worship, institutions of faith, use Facebook for more than just marketing, use it to actually help people connect with each other, connect with their faith and grow in their faith. And so the idea of social ministry really grew out of my personal recognition that social media has the power to connect people of faith to one another and to their faith in deeper ways. So social ministry is using social technology to minister to people's lives and meet their needs, as opposed to just telling people about your programs and events. Let's talk about Faith and Prejudice. Yeah. This, this very powerful initiative that you've launched. First of all, tell us about Faith and Prejudice, and then let's talk about what led you to catalyze that idea. Sure. Well, thank you. So, and thank you for, for being a part of, uh, being a part of it. Um, so Faith and Prejudice is, uh, it's essentially a, a national movement of, of Christians who have determined 
that it's time to confront and dismantle systemic racism in America uh, once and for all. Um, it's it's no longer uh, convenient to just you know recognize that racism exists in pockets and assume that it doesn't touch real life. Um, now we have to examine every single area of our life, and as Christians. We have a responsibility to confront injustice. So that's essentially what faith and prejudice is. And I think where it came from, let me first say, I was not in any way planning on building uh, a racial justice uh, (laughs) equity organization over the summer. That was not how I was planning (laughs) to spend my summer. But um, after after the, the horrific tragedy that happened to George Floyd and how the nation was just gripped with so much anxiety and and just sorrow. I was I was in prayer and I was like, "All right, Lord, what can I do?" You know, I, I work at Facebook. Um, I I would love to find a way to use my my resources to to do something for this. And I got the vision for Faith and Prejudice because I noticed on social media that a lot of influencers, pastors, business executives, they were starting to have conversations about race but they were having them with with their friends. Like they were mm-hmm. basically saying, hey, person who's not going to characterize me as racist, let's have a conversation about race. What white people talking to white people, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. What you have. Right, right. Yeah, pretty much. Um, or, or they were kind of leaning over to like the nearest black person in their social circle and saying, hey, let's talk about race. And, um, you know, I used to work in the juvenile justice space. And so I know that unless you really understand the nuances of these issues, you'll only stay surface. So the idea of faith and prejudice was bringing scholars, civil rights leaders, theologians, and advocates who had dedicated their lives to these issues to Christians in mass using Facebook as the platform to do that so that they can get educated, that they can get inspired and mobilized. Uh, and that was really the vision. Um, and I think statistically, the reason why I thought that was important is a lot of times we think of racism as a political issue, but mm. I saw that uh, right now, 30% of Americans identify as Republican, 31% identify as Democrat, but 65% identify as Christian. And so that's more than both major political parties combined. Mm. Uh, I realized that if we can get Christians on the same page about injustice, uh, we can really make some things happen in this country. So brag a little bit. Uh, tell us about how the program has succeeded. Did, <laughs> did you have any idea that it would become as successful as it's become? Not at all. Yeah. So uh, let me first tell you, my initial thought uh, was to just host a week of Facebook Lives in July um, across different you know, aspects of racism, featuring some really amazing speakers. And uh, I thought that would be the end all be all. I'd be done. But uh, it built a lot of momentum. So we had people like, you know, Ambassador Andrew Young, um, people like Dr. Barbara Williams Skinner, who's the founding executive director of the Congressional Black Caucus, people like Brian Stevenson, Dr. Bernice King, Dr. Tony Evans. I mean, all these people. And it, it literally came together. I'm not exaggerating. It came together in like two and a half weeks, three weeks. Um, and it just all worked out. And we had we reached about six million people across the week. Uh, we had about a million and a half that tuned in uh, and actually like watched the different episodes and that number continues to increase. Uh, but every night we had at least like the, the lowest number was about 350,000 people um, that, that watched. Um, and since then, we've, we've done some, some master classes uh, where people have actually gotten to, to have conversations with some of our speakers to deepen their knowledge. 
um, it's it's really grown into into a movement. You mentioned the word inflection as it related to yeah. your life. There was an inflection point in your life, and clearly, after George Floyd, it was an inflection point in the the life of this country. But we've had them before. You know, yeah. we, we've had the Emmett Till's of the world. This has happened. So prejudice has been a factor in American life since before the country's founding. Why do you think you have so many white people finally coming to terms with the realities of racism in our nation now at this point in 2020? Oh, that's a great question. I've I've given that a lot of thought, and I, I think part of it has to do with uh with with the pandemic. I mean, it it, it you know this idea of sheltering in place, um, it's caused a lot of people who may have been distracted to have the ability to focus. You know, um, I think there were a lot of people who just were home with nowhere to go. Uh, when when this all went down, and so I think there was just this. Uh, concentrated attention that oftentimes um, doesn't doesn't happen in these situations. And when you don't have concentrated attention, what you typically do is you um, you filter events through your convenient mental model because you don't have time to understand the details and the nuances. So you just say, "Oh, well, that probably happened because you know he did something wrong," um, and you just go about your day. I think now people really had the time to sit up and notice. I think the second piece, though is there is a, a generation that is very attuned to social justice and, and racial inequities. And this generation is saying to their parents, you know, it's not okay to have these views. Like it's, it's not okay. Um, because these, these are the kids, you know, I think about Trayvon Martin. I'm like, these are the kids who the reason why they were so hurt and offended and angry by the verdict of that case is because there are kids in their school who remind them of Trayvon Martin that mm. they're friends with. And so I think proximity really causes you to have to confront your own biases. When you aren't proximate to people, you can just, you know, you can live based on your convenient assumptions. But when you're proximate and you know them, uh, it's really hard to let those convenient assumptions um, guide your thinking. So this seems like it was circumstance, almost perfect storm of consciousness. It's it's circumstantial. It's generational. What happens from here, Nona? What do you think we see out of this true systemic change? Mm. You know, I'm praying so, and I, I got to tell you, I'm really encouraged um, by the the people I've seen engaged with faith and prejudice. There have been so many people who have said to us, and I try to stay focused on them because I'm going to talk about the other half in a minute, but the other 10% in a minute, I'm not going to give them that much. But there have been so many people who have come to us and said, you know what, listen, before your organization, I honestly didn't understand what, what the big deal was. I really thought that if somebody died in police custody, it was their fault. Um, but I realize now that this is this is a bias that I'm bringing to this, and so people have been grateful. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that this will continue. There have been people who have told us we're not quitting, we're not leaving this table. We want to make change. So now, where where our role is is we have to like channel people's energy in the direction of change, and that's what we're trying to do. Is we're trying to help people see what are some substantive uh, steps you can take to actually make change in your local community. Having said that, there are the you know, 10, 15% who come to our platform and they say things like, oh, you're just a leftist Marxist communist 
BLM, whatever. They, they throw all these, you know, uh, statements at us. Um, but what they don't realize is our leadership team actually spans the entirety of the political spectrum. Uh, we're, we're not doing this because we're aligned with the political ideology. We're doing this because it's wrong, mm. <laughs> period, right? So yeah, that's, that's where we are is I think next, we're really trying to harness people's energy and passion in the direction of change. Martin Luther King Jr. said on Meet the Press in 1960, uh, and this is a quote, the shameful tragedies in America is that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning yeah. is one of the most segregated hours, if not the most segregated hour in Christian America. Yeah. 60 years later, Christianity still tends to be segregated. Yeah. Is that a function of race, culture, religion? What's behind that <laughs> That, that segregation that we see in the Christian community? Man, that's such a great question. Um, the thing I know is that your faith, you, Nathan Rutstein made a, a brilliant quote. He said, prejudice is an emotional commitment to ignorance. And uh, <laughs> there are people <laughs> who are emotionally invested in the idea that um, whatever benefits they have accrued based on their race uh, you know, that they are not privileged. And so therefore anyone who brings that up becomes the enemy. I think the reason why we continue to see that segregation and separation is because we haven't dealt with these issues, plain and simple. Um, we haven't really dug into the history of race in America as, as a Christian community, as the body of Christ. And, and let's be honest. So I'm really excited about um, our, um, our September um, episode of Faith and Prejudice is dealing with the intersection of race, hate, and faith. And one mm. of the people that we're talking to is Pastor J.D. Greer. He leads the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, which if people know the history of the Southern, Southern Baptist Convention, they specifically broke off from the Baptist denomination because of the issue of slavery. Like that, that's why they formed their own convention. Um, and so I think until we grapple with these issues, we're going to continue to live in these bubbles. Uh, Dr. King had it right. Uh, Sunday is, in fact, the most segregated day in America, and it, it will continue to be that, I think, until we're willing to have the real hard conversations and confront these truths. Can those walls come down in the next generation, do you think? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I Just as quickly as someone can change their mind about what they're going to wear today, people can change their mind about what you believe about other people. It, it's, it's a decision. But, but you know, it, racism, if you think about Christianity in its purest form, racism is antithetical. Mm -hmm. to the teachings of Jesus Christ. So why do you think it's it's <laughs> sort of embedded to some degree, has been embedded to this point? I, and I know I asked you that before. I know I asked you what the inflection point is, but, but is there something beyond that, Nona, that you've recognized? I believe that the Christian faith is intended, the Christian faith is intended to, to fundamentally change your, your thinking, your heart, uh, and your your actions. It's fundamentally designed to do that. However, I think what some people have done is they have tried to essentially mold the Christian faith to their thinking, their heart, and their actions. And so what happens is people appropriate the teachings of Jesus as a method 
of kind of propping up um, their previously held beliefs that are wrong and are antithetical to scripture. That's something that we fight against. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you, as a Christian in the tech industry, I fight against this all the time. Uh, I work with so many colleagues who they say, you know what, Christians are just, you know, bigots and, you know, racists and hate filled because that's what they see. Um, and so uh, mm-hmm. I think you're absolutely right. I think when people have a real understanding of scripture, there is no way that you can be racist. As a matter of fact, um, that's some, one of the things we do at Faith and Prejudice is we constantly put scripture before people's eyes, social justice scriptures. Um, out of the mouth of Jesus, one of the things that Jesus said, he was giving a, a, a talk about the, the kingdom of, of heaven. And he talked about how there would be people who would come and they would say, oh, you know, we healed in your name and we prophesied in your name. We did all these things in your name. And Jesus would say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. And they were like, wait, what do you mean? And he would say, because mm-hmm. when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. Um, and, and these people are like, well, what do you mean? We never saw you that way. He said, what you did to the least of these, you did to me. And I think sometimes you can forget that because we get in this comfortable zone where it's like, oh, I have everything I need. Mm. No, Jesus was about justice. And we can't separate that uh, from our faith, but some have, somehow. What is the greatest misunderstanding most people have mm. about Jesus Christ? I think, I think it's that, that somehow um, you can decouple faith and justice. Uh, Jesus's life mm. was a life lived uh, at the intersection of of the kingdom of God as well as justice on earth. I think about the story of uh, there's a story of a woman who got caught in adultery. The thing I think it's so funny about the story is the story is about a woman caught in adultery, but it doesn't say anything about the man. So I don't know. But anyway, she gets she gets caught right, and so the the, the people who who caught her they're pull they're pulling her out. They're they're ready to stone her, and Jesus is happens to be in the area and they're like, all right, here we go. Jesus did not say to them, all right, boys, teach her a lesson. Jesus said, I tell you what, you who are without sin, cast the first stone. And the reason that he did that was twofold. Number one, he wanted them to recognize that you are that woman. You're about to stone the woman, but you are her. Um, But I think two, he also wanted to demonstrate the fact that he came in order to bring compassion. Um, I think that's the misconception. There are are many Christians who think that Jesus came to, you know, uh, bring all of this, you know, judgment. Uh, That's that's something that will happen after we die, but that's not why he came to bring judgment. He came in order to demonstrate the love of God, the unending love of God. I think that's the misconception. And unfortunately, there are many Mm. people who know they know the Bible like inside and out and they can use it as a weapon. Jesus never used scripture as a weapon. He used it as a bomb. He used it to heal the hurting. Um, and I think that's, that's where sometimes we get it. We get it wrong. Back to faith and prejudice for a moment. Uh, what is the, the single most important thing you've learned from faith and prejudice since you launched the initiative a couple of months ago? Wow. Well, one, one thing I definitely learned is that I had no idea how deep um, deep prejudice runs within some people. Uh, I think because I was truly just yielding to the voice of God, I just, I figured, I was like, oh, well, this is going to be simple. You know, people are going to want to do this. It's going to be great. I didn't realize uh, the, the depth 
of some people's um, investment in prejudice. And Mm. there are people who, you know, they say very vile things. And I've had to learn, I think back on Dr. King all the time. I'm like, I'm not dealing with like a a 10th of what you dealt with. How did you do it? Um, I also learned that this is long haul work. You know, it's, it's not, you know, quick shot in the pan. This is something that you have to be dedicated to. Um, and you know, you can't allow, it would be super convenient for me to just step away tomorrow, you know, shut all the stuff down and go Mm. back to reality. Um, but when you're called to something, uh, difficulty doesn't discourage you. It just confirms the fact that you were called to it. So that's what I've learned. <laughs> you're clearly a person of, of faith and of grace. I mean, you're, you're forgiving your, uh, your mother and your abuser is a great example of that. But how do you not take that prejudice that's being directed at you mm. personally? This is a great question. So um, it, it's, it's a very real question for me because um, when we first did our very first episode, like when we did the very first one, Right after that, uh, I started to get emails from people when they were just like, you're, you know, you're a racist, you're Marxist, you're communist, you know, this is offensive. Uh, I got a, a couple churches, they said, you know, this is not what we signed up for. This is race baiting and all of this stuff. And uh, I was really hurt. Like, I was so hurt because my heart was just like, I want to educate people. Um, it was not political at all. I just want to educate people. And I prayed about it. And I said, Lord, what are you teaching me in this? And God was teaching me two things. One, he said, if you saw a blind person getting ready to cross a busy highway, what would you do? I was like, I would pull over and help them. He was like, exactly. He said, these people are blind. They don't need you to attack them. They don't need you to hit them with your car. They need you to help them. And so that changed my entire heart. Uh, toward these people when they attack or when they say things. Um, I simply want to help. And so I will come back and I'll ask questions. Uh, I don't get into arguments back and forth and all that, but I will ask like, hey, how did you arrive at that conclusion that we're, you know, a a leftist Marxist, (laughs) whatever organization? Um, And then they'll answer. And then I'll say, okay, I say, well, let me ask you this. Because I've I've had people say things like, oh, you know, um, we we just need to to preach the, the gospel. We don't need to be involved in you know racial equity this is this will take care of itself and i say oh that's interesting i said okay well tell me this um do you also feel that way about the pro-life movement do you feel that that's something that should not happen either that we should just preach the gospel and they're like well that's different because those are you know babies that are you know um you know they can't help it and i say well you know i don't think black people choose to be born black so you know i, I do think it's kind of the same and and my 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 contention is just, let's have a conversation. Let's talk about it. And what I found is after having that conversation, a lot of times people will leave with, you know, I, I see what you're saying. And I may not agree, agree fully, but I, I see what you're saying. And I appreciate the tone and the tenor of the conversation. So that's, that's, what, that's what I'm trying to do. And it's all because of the revelation God gave me is, look, these people are blind. Don't attack them. Don't hit them with your car. Help them cross the highway. So what's next for Faith and Prejudice? Great question. <laughs> well, we're, we're doing a, a bunch of things. Um, one in particular is we're thinking now about how to support 
equitable educational opportunities um, for disadvantaged communities. So we're thinking about things like, you know, scholarships. Uh, we're thinking about things like tech programs that we could potentially bring to under under uh, resourced communities. Um, and we're also really interested in thinking about this issue with history. Right now, there's not really an accurate American history book, and I think that's foundational to why we have the issues we have. I think those decisions are made at the state level, which means that different students are learning different things. Um, so we're, we're kind of talking right now about what would it look like if we were able to commission uh, an accurate American history textbook um, and then lead the charge on that um, and see what happens. So we're, we're really trying to, to start there. And we're also building a collective action infrastructure. So we have all these churches and Christians who are like, we want to take action. So what we want to do is we want to resource them um, and keep them aware of what they can do to actually lead change in their local communities, as well as at the state and the national level. How can our listeners best tap into Faith and Prejudice? Oh, well, thanks for that. You can visit uh, faithandprejudice.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram, we're just at Faith and A-N-D, Prejudice. Um, and yeah, we, we would love to, to have you engaged in our work, and I'd love to connect with you there. Nona Jones, thank you so much for being with us here today, and thank you so much for the important work you're doing. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you very much. My thanks to Nona Jones, to our sponsors, St. David's Healthcare and the Moody Foundation. And thanks to you for joining us. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Mark Updegrove. See you next time.